The Fanboy, episode 97. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 97 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Got a huge show for you this week. I got screenwriter Zach Stentz coming on in a little bit to talk about his new movie, Rim of the World, and along the way we touch on all kinds of really, really cool stuff because it's amazing to see how many of his fingerprints are all over things that we're all enjoying the heck out of this year. But for now, I got to talk about last week a little bit. I got to talk about episode 96 because the response to episode 96 was extremely enthusiastic. It seems I struck a chord with a lot of you who really kind of share my concerns for what's going on in the blogosphere, for what's going on in fandom. And honestly, if you haven't listened to episode 96 yet, I strongly suggest that you do because... Uh, I kind of just unleashed a lot of frustrations and concerns of mine. And a lot of people seem to feel like, yeah, me too. I feel that way. So to everyone who took the time to contact me to let them know that 96 really kind of spoke to them on a deeper level. And for those of you who left me some reviews, which I'll be reading a little later on after the interview, you know, I just want to thank you all. And to just sort of put a button on that, because I ended last week's episode kind of, you know, promising to do a little introspection this week to try to figure out how to make sure I'm not part of the problem, but rather part of the solution to these things. And I came up with two very simple things. One, simplest of all, get off the internet. I swear it's the silliest, simplest thing in the world. But if there's anything else that I learned from that Christopher McQuarrie podcast, the Empire podcast that I was speaking about so much last week, as I had finally just taken the time to listen to them, if there was something else I learned from McQuarrie's insights about the filmmaking process, about what making these big studio pictures is like. I learned that all of this minutiae, all of this stuff that we obsess about online, factors not at all in the actual filmmaking process. And to find that out was actually sort of like life reaffirming in a way for me to realize that all of this like obsessive behavior, all of this out into the weeds that a lot of us fans like to get analyzing things and psychoanalyzing things and fighting with other fans who draw different conclusions, all the stuff that Twitter and Reddit and all this, you know, online world is known for is not the real world. In the actual entertainment business, they don't really worry about any of that stuff. And to me, hearing that from Macquarie and knowing that really, like, none of this stuff we obsess about so much and create petitions about and angry hashtags for, none of this stuff really matters in the grand scheme of things, and it doesn't really impact the filmmaking process. Seeing that has helped me realize I need to spend less time involved in all that stuff. I need to step away from the Twitter for, you know, large chunks of time, and I've been doing that. I couldn't suggest strongly enough just getting offline for you know, as often and for as long as possible. Because a lot of the stuff that happens online, a lot of the ugliness, you realize it's, it's just 1% of the conversation that's happening. And the other thing, and the thing that's gonna help me feel like I'm not contributing to the problem, but rather creating a solution, is to be the change. Simply be the change that I wanna see in the world. If there's things that I see other bloggers doing that I don't care for, simple. I won't do them. You know, if there's things that I see fans saying to each other and I, if I see that people are being mean and divisive and cruel and vindictive, all I have to do is not be any of those things and I can sleep soundly at night. So, you know, th those are kind of like just to kind of, you know, put a button on episode 96 and how I intend to address and deal with a lot of that stuff on a personal level, get off the internet more often and be the change I wanna see in the world. It's really quite that simple. And something that makes this whole process so much easier for me, 
something that, that, that keeps me wanting to, to push through my concerns and continue to try to produce two good podcasts for you a week and all kinds of content on revengeofthefans.com is the support of people like you. If you're listening to this, if you're watching it on YouTube and you've taken the time to tell your friends about the show or just let me know what the show means to you or if you've contributed any reviews, which you're going to get into a little bit later, you know, thank you so much because you're why I do this. You're why I do this. And specifically today with Zach Stentz, I mean, this interview got hooked up by one of you guys which is one of the cool, really remarkable things that's happened and really you know, makes me look at all of this in a much more positive way, is that one of my listeners, Diego Fernandez Salazar, what an epic name, Diego. Um, you know, he saw that Zach Stentz had put out some feelers on Twitter to talk about his movie Rim of the World, and he connected us, you know, he replied to it, he tagged me in it, and then I kind of took the baton from Diego, and I followed up with Mr. Stentz, and then all of a sudden, you know, you could pinch me, it's like a dream come true, last Tuesday, I got to interview a major Hollywood screenwriter who's been involved with movies that I have very strong feelings about, so it's like a dream come true, and it came from you guys. And that's why you, my listeners, my supporters, my Revenge of the Fans people, my Revengers, you know, to me, you symbolize the best of what fandom can be. This is what we're supposed to be doing. Having each other's back. Creating a community. Trying to celebrate cool stuff. Create cool opportunities for each other. That's what this is all about. At the end of the day, that's the most I could ask for. And... That's why this stance thing, it, to me, it's such a beautiful way to kind of bring things full circle. Because I do this show for you guys. I'm not doing it. I ain't getting rich doing this. But what I do it for is for your enjoyment. And to now have an interview that was basically helped put together by one of you is just a perfect sort of way to kind of like, it's the harmony of all this. It's the beautiful full circle of this love that I feel for this stuff that I pour out there for you guys to enjoy. And you guys pouring that love back towards me. So thank you, Diego, for helping put this interview on my radar and for getting the ball rolling on Mr. Stentz and I having a conversation. Uh, we have, you know, for those of you who follow the site, you already know that there are going to be some pretty interesting, noteworthy things that come up during this. So you're going to get to hear about them in more detail now. So I really hope you enjoy it. And then join me on the other side. Because on the other side of the interview, which is approximately 28 minutes long, I'm going to talk a little Game of Thrones, a little Terminator Dark Fate trailer reaction stuff, and a little more. So meet me in uh, 28 minutes on the other side of this. But for now, here's my conversation with Mr. Zach Stentz. Right now, it is my pleasure to bring on a writer I have a ton of respect for. His credits include X-Men First Class, Thor, Terminator, the Sarah, Croner, Sarah Connor Chronicles, that's a tongue twister, Fringe, and a few of your favorite episodes of the CW's The Flash. He's none other than Mr. Zach Stentz. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm, I'm like super excited to have you on for like a number of reasons. And I kind of want to just start by pointing something out, which is... Like, has it really hit you how your fingerprints are kind of everywhere this year? You know, like when you consider that you have ties to the Marvel Cinematic Universe through Thor, to Fox's X-Men Universe through X-Men First Class, and even, you know, the, the Terminator Universe by, you know, working on the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and there's going to be Terminator Dark Fate later this year, and that you've got a new movie coming out today, May 24th, does it hit you at all just how big of a year 2019 is for you? <laughs> um, it doesn't really. <laughs> I'm so fo I've been so focused on this movie, and of course there's the lead time. You know, Everything has such a big lead time in movies and mm -hmm. to a lesser extent TV that um and even more so in animation that when the things that you worked on come out oftentimes like you're on to not just the next project but the next project after the next project so <laughs> yeah. when people interview you sometimes you have to kind of kind of uh, set the wayback machine and uh, <laughs> and think hard about that it's like what was it like on set i'm like oh yeah, um uh good i think <laughs> 
Yeah, and you know, I guess I actually did have a question about how you view all that stuff because, you know, you were part of these sort of foundational pillars for these things that are ending this year, but it was years ago. You know, like you, you worked on a Marvel Phase 1 film. You worked on Thor, and now that probably feels like ancient history, you know, and you worked on X-Men yeah, First it was Class. Literally, yeah, it was literally 10 years ago um, was when we worked, did most of our work on Thor, and nine years ago was uh, was when we did most of our work on uh, on X-Men First Class. And it does feel like we... Uh, we helped lay a few bricks there uh, at the at the very beginnings of the uh, of of the MCU, and then uh, and then in kind of the reboot phase of uh, of the Fox Fox universe after uh, after a couple of misfires. Yeah, yeah, to to, to say the least. So yeah, yeah, and that's why I mean, like your your fingerprints are on these things that are like kind of coming, you know, reaching a boil this year, and it's kind of coincidental, I guess, but. You know, you got Dark Phoenix that is going to finally sort of close out that loop. You know, the, the loop that you began with First Class, you know, that you guys put together. Because that movie really was kind of a, you know, sort of a, a reset for the X-Men franchise. And now that's coming to a close. You know, when you look at Dark Phoenix, do you feel any sort of like sense of ownership to that? Or do you still kind of view it or do you view it as more of like an outsider looking in? Um, a, a little bit of both, honestly. Um, it's it's you know there's there's the ownership and the the being there and and playing a major role in kind of the 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 younger versions of a lot of the characters. Um, the the Michael Fassbender Magneto and mm -hmm. uh, and the the uh, McAvoy Professor X, for example. But um, you know, it's it's also moved on without us, uh, and and there there's the little bit of the melancholy of uh, you know when when you see characters that you helped establish in other people's hands, it's a little bit like uh, like uh, you know looking at the Instagram of an ex girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it really uh, it, it is the end of an era, isn't it? Um, oh, it is. Uh, and actually, you know, while we're in this space here talking about first class, you know, there's like a common knowledge or like a word on the street amongst fans that I'd love to kind of ask you about, which is, you know, people kind of speak of first class as if it began as a Magneto origin story. Because, you know, there had been talk for a couple of years leading up to that, that they wanted to do a whole line of, like, X-Men Origins movies. And that's why X-Men Origins Wolverine was just the first. And that there would also be an X-Men Origins Magneto. And a lot of people kind of think that that project morphed into First Class. And I guess um, I just want to know, is that, you know, is that true? Or, go ahead. If if you if you drew a chart of like the the different ways that the X Men universe branched and oftentimes into projects that didn't end up uh, um, coming to fruition, <laughs> it would look like some FBI like serial killer yarn, <laughs> you know, yarn wall with things connecting with things connecting each other. But um, the short version is there was a script called I Magneto um, that was originally by Sheldon Turner with a rewrite by David Goyer um, that went pretty far down the down the road. And then they decided, oh, we want to do X-Men first class instead and then there was a version that Josh Schwartz wrote um, the guy who did uh, Gossip Girl and the OC and mm -hmm. they threw that out and then they started over again with another version with uh, uh, Jamie Moss I believe and then they brought us in and it was kind of our version was the was the one that ended up getting made but there were in the final shooting version there were scenes and pages from that original magneto script that were folded into the finished product and that's why sheldon turner has a shared story credit on uh, on x-men first class um some people were very angry at that uh, who were involved in the film but in my mind like when i read all of the different scripts it was deserved i was like the opening in Auschwitz and then with um, with uh, Sebastian Shaw right out of that original script, except it was originally uh, Mr. Sinister, um, which is why Sebastian Shaw actually has powers more like Mr. Sinister's than, than his own. Um, so so it was a long story short is a very convoluted process, but yeah. there is DNA of the um, 
of the um, magneto, the aborted magneto script in the uh, in the final version. There we go. All right. So so that that confirms that. Um, and you know, I, I'm always sort of fascinated by like what you just described. All of the interesting like behind the scenes machinations and the things that kind of lead, you know, the kind of uh, have a script evolve to meet the different needs of what the studio wants to happen at that time or what direction they want to go in. And, you know, when it comes to Thor, you know, there were a couple of things that, that the, the co-founder of our site, John Crabtree, wanted to ask you about because he's just very curious about how your approach to that film and the different sort of um, parameters that may have been put in play. Because people kind of have this perception that at Marvel oh. Studios... Well, it gets good. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can talk about... Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you were working on Thor, right, you know... The, the entire franchise was kind of like people forget that Disney didn't own Marvel Studios initially. Marvel Studios was kind of on its own, and they had d deals with Paramount and other and Universal still. Yeah, uh, we used to get our residual checks from Paramount. There you go. And with that in mind, you know what was it like? Like, were you on before the Disney sale, or do, you oh, know, yeah. long before the Disney sale? I think the the Disney sale was right before the Avengers, and we were we were on in late two thousand eight through uh, spring of two thousand nine. So so Thor was very much still a Paramount movie. Okay, and and, and I guess that you know, that sort of you know, frames the basis for John's question to you because when Disney came on board, did they kind of like try to steer the script in a different direction? Were there new sort of rules or parameters put into play, or were you did that not really affect you? didn't affect us at all because it, we were a paramount movie and and frankly i don't think disney you know like like when disney bought the mcu um they were buying kevin feige's brain as as much <laughs> they were buying uh as as much as they were buying the you know 30,000 or however many uh, marvel characters that they that they got the rights to so they've been um you know like i think they have a big hand in marketing but uh, on the creative side i think they pretty much let feige run the show because by the time they bought it he had already you know proven his bona fides and that this is this is someone who knows what he's doing so maybe let him do his job Nice. Interesting. Yeah, because you know, so some people have this perception of like Disney is this big like corporate overlord who has to like micromanage what you're doing. But it doesn't sound like you had to deal with anything like that. No, not at, not at all. I, 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 we answered to uh, I, I mean, if there were studio notes, which would have been from Paramount in our case, they were filtered through um, Feige, our our hands on executive, Craig Kyle, of course, Ken, the yeah. director, and um, and and the kind of Marvel creative committee that used to exist, kind of floating in the background somewhere. But but we got our notes directly from them. Got you. And on that subject, actually, of like studio notes and whatnot, you know, John is very curious about the fact that while everyone points to Iron Man two as being the film that was sort of used for a lot of world building, he thinks Thor actually does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of setting the stage for Avengers and making the events shown in Avengers, you know, actually work, make them land. It, it, it opens the door for a lot of that. And I'm just curious, was that something that, you know, like, were you asked to do that or did that happen organically or is it a beautiful coincidence or, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated it's a complicated issue because we had a very clear mandate when we were writing Thor. They already knew that they were building towards the Avengers and they already had the notion that Loki was going to be the villain. And they 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 knew that their villains thus far in the MCU had been a bit underwhelming. And they said they, they one of the executives literally said, look, if you fail at everything else, give us a villain as good as Magneto in Loki. We need someone we need someone at that level because that's gonna be our villain for the Avengers. So, you know, I mean I mean we always put a lot of effort into our villains, but yeah. uh, but in this case we really worked hard on, you know, make giving Loki an interesting story and making him uh, you know, kind of sympathetic at the same time as he's He's doing these horrible things. So, yeah. so that was kind of the mandate. The, the the places where we kind of went off on our own and it ended up being worked into the Avengers was, um, you know, like like it. Was
was our idea to put in a, a cameo from uh, from Clint Barton. That was oh, that wow. we surprised them with that. And and at first, Feige was like, uh, "It's like I, this is great, but I don't know. We're going to have to cast a real actor, and and we're not ready to do that yet." And then they realized that the scene had been written in a way that um, you could shoot the ace, you could shoot the B side with Thor. Yeah, and then just and and then just shoot the um, the A side with whatever actor you cast for the Avengers at a at a later you know at a date much closer to production. So that's what they um, that's what they ended up doing, wow. and uh, and then the other thing. Um, which we all we got a lot of pushback on was um, was having Shield be so front and center in the in the whole thing. They were they were uncomfortable at the idea that Shield would be the antagonist um, because they were like, you know, we want to sell Shield action figures, and <laughs> yeah, we had to convince them that without Shield as the antagonist in the middle of the film, that there's basically no one trying to stop Thor until you know, Loki and the destroy, you know, Loki sends the destroyer after him. So, so they came around on that and, um, and, you know, I, I think shield ended up being integrated into the film pretty well. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's actually kind of, it's very notable how seamless those things are in there. You, you would almost think that that was sort of planned to be that way. Um, it you know, that, that's the, uh, that's the key is make it look like you always meant to do that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then now circling back to Loki, because, you know, if you were trying to make a compelling villain, arguably you made Marvel's, you know, diamond in the rough when it comes to villains. You know, a lot of people get very excited about some of the newer ones. This and Thanos is unbelievable. But Loki was the first truly, really, really compelling villain. And <clears throat> I've got a question regarding him, too, because there's a moment in, in the first Thor film where he reaches for the hammer. And the question is, like, does he just want power or is he wondering if he's worthy in that moment? Oh, in in our minds, the first Thor movie makes no sense unless you come at it from the perspective that what Loki wants at the end of the day is his dad's approval. Hmm. It's all about it's all about feeling like he was the passed over one um that he's he's the he's the one who ought to be running things who's much better qualified to run things and yet dad is handing things over to his hothead brother whom he loves deeply but also resents at the same time so that's you know you can't understand loki unless you understand him as this bundle of of you know mischief resentment trickery um, but deep love underneath it for his brother, for his parents, his adoptive parents, and for Asgard. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, it's absolutely, you know, you're absolutely spot on about that. And I think, you know, you absolutely succeeded when it comes to Loki. Um, now, you, it's funny, because before we get into to Rim of the World, which I'm excited to talk to you about, you're also attached to a couple other big things. I'm just curious about, like, the status of them, because, like, I couldn't help but notice that you're working on a Booster Gold movie. And is there any, has there been any movement, any kind of update on that? Um, I do not know what's going on with it right now, honestly. And I don't think, I don't know if the DC, if the DC people know what's going on with it. Their strategy seems to change depending on how each of their movie, you know, how, how their most recent movie did. But I can tell you that, um, a script has been turned in that, um, the director and producer, Greg Berlanti is very, has proclaimed himself to be very happy with. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's ready to go if, uh, but, but DC and, um, and Warner brothers would need to, would need to give the green light to it. So that's the, the yeah, ball so. is in, is in their court. And then the other one, which I know you're going to ask about big trouble in Little <laughs> China. Yes. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with that. Again, we, we turned in the script. They said they were happy with it. I've now heard rumors that they might be going in a different direction. We made, uh, we, my ex-partner and I wrote a straight up, um, remake where, where, um, 
Dwayne Johnson is playing Jack Burton. Mm -hmm. I think after spending time with Kurt Russell on the set of the last couple of Fast and the Furious movies, I I think some conversations may have taken place. And I think they might be coming around to the idea that um, it's going to be more of a sequel than a uh, than a remake and that uh, Kurt would come back as an older Jack Burton and uh, and Dwayne would be playing a new character. But as far as I know, they they haven't commissioned writers and they haven't kind of moved forward on that simply because of a combination of Dwayne being booked for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future and and the fact that it's a um, it's a Fox movie and the the sale to Disney has kind of thrown a lot of things into uh, into chaos and uncertainty. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. Well, that makes sense. So I guess, you know, we're still kind of in the uh, wait and see portion then when it comes to Booster Gold and, and Big Trouble in Little China. Exactly. I would say they're, they're, they're not dead, but uh, resting their eyes. I and, gotcha. <laughs> you never know. And the thing about these things is you never know when one of them comes roaring back to life. Yeah. Now, something we definitely, you know, we don't have to wait and see for is what's available today on Netflix, streaming immediately for your pleasure, is Rim of the World. Now, th- th- this is uh, th- this has got to feel pretty cool for you because a lot of the stuff you're attached to are like adaptations or things of, of existing properties and things where you're, you know, you're working with a lot of other people. It feels like Rim of the World, like this is your baby in a way, in terms of like, you know, you wrote it and this has got to feel pretty special. It absolutely does. There, there is, you know, after having, as you said, done reboots, adaptations, remakes, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. There, there was something, and as you know, we're in this Hollywood landscape where it's incredibly difficult to get original work made right now. Almost everything has to be based on something underlying for it to get a, a green light. There was something so wonderful about sitting down writing an original script and sell you know like i like to say it took three months to write a year to close all of the deals and then when the deals finally closed we were shooting like two and a half months later oh wow it's it's that crazy netflix thing of of they they may take forever to say yes but once they say yes um they hit the gas okay spend five years you know doing 20 (laughs) <laughs> rewrites with 10 writers um you you have a script we all like go and shoot it yeah and i'm curious like with this script with the i, I love the premise of it i love the, the the central idea being you know what happened if basically the world came to an end while you were at summer camp you know with this group of friends like wh- where did that come from is that something you've thought about for years or did it just kind of happen um, naturally recently I have for years and years been wanting to do because I have children myself and I feel like very few people are making the kind of movies for them and for for kids their age the way that and I'm going to date myself here the way that people my age grew up (laughs) on E.T. Goonies Explorers Stand By Me all of those wonderful drama, action, adventure movies that put kids slash teens front and center as the heroes. I loved those movies growing up. I still love those movies. And I basically wanted to do something that um, was was both a tribute to the, to the Amblin and Amblin-esque movies of my childhood, but also bringing those bringing those characters and bringing those situations into the, into the 21st century. And, um, I was taking my, um, I was taking one of my kids to, uh, to summer camp up in the Santa Bernardino mountains on Rim mm. of the Wolf highway. And I was driving down and there's, there's a place on the, there's a, a Vista point on the highway where you look out. And if it's a clear day, you can see like 80 miles out or hundred miles almost to the ocean. And all of Southern California, L.A. Basin is is laid out before you. And I just kind of this vision popped into my head of like, wow, what if this was all a war zone and you had to go into it? And and that was the little that was the little acorn that the uh, that the that the story grew from. Oh, that's wonderful. 
You know, I mean, it, it, it looks it looks like it's going to be uh, like a great ride. And that's why I want to let you know, like here in the Robles household, we have a little tradition on Friday nights whenever possible. We have our movie nights here. And tonight I'm planning on sitting down and watching Rim of the World with my eight year old daughter and my five year old son. And uh, there's a little bit of rough language in a couple <laughs> places. So you might want to cover their it, like PG-13. Yeah, swearing. listen, they, if, they can handle if, the Avengers movies. I'm sure they can handle this. If they can handle the Avengers or like Stranger Things, they can handle this. For sure. Okay. And by the way, it's funny you bring up Stranger Things because a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, I saw you kind of pointing out that like people want to draw these comparisons, but Stranger Things is not, you know, they didn't buy the patent on a group of kids, you know, coming of age and with some crazy sci-fi twist, right? It, yeah, exactly. I saw someone on YouTube say, remember when the Duffer Brothers invented children? Uh <laughs> You know, it's, it's, I mean, on one level, God bless Stranger Things, because while I wrote, I, I started this script in early 2016 before Stranger Things dropped, and my agents and managers were saying, why are you writing this? No one wants to make movies with, or, or TV shows with kid or teen protagonists. <laughs> Stranger wow. Things' breakout success yeah was a factor in people taking a close look at this and saying oh maybe there is a market for amblin-esque um sci-fi adventures with kids after all so that was a huge help but you know tonally this is i, I would say this is less stranger things than than it, it's influenced by some of the same movies that stranger things is influenced by mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. that would be a fair way to put it I got you. I got you. And now, look, I know I know you got to get going, but I got one more for you. This is more just my I own. Oh, all right. Well, 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 let's see how long of an answer this one gets me because okay. I'm a Superman fanatic. Mm -hmm. And there was just this one passing interaction you had on Twitter last year that's been on my mind ever since. And you probably haven't even thought of it since. But Christopher McQuarrie was doing a lot of like Q&A stuff and there was a lot of buzz around the idea that maybe he could direct a new Superman movie with Henry Cavill. Remember, this was all in the lead up to Mission Impossible Fallout. So that was on a lot of people's minds. And then I saw that you kind of threw your name into the hat to to write a Superman movie that that McQuarrie would direct. And as the Superman fanatic I am, I got to say the thought of that made my my mind explode. Like that would be amazing if that would happen. I, but, I know Chris a little bit. I haven't met him in person. We we interact on social media a bit, but uh, I, I have been very clear that it, that uh, that that it's like, dude, I will, I will. <laughs> I know, I know. You always like to do the later drafts, but I will crawl over broken glass to do a draft of a Superman movie for you, for you, because um, he would be amazing. Yeah, um, he would be. But I also and, think your script would, would love, be. I, you know, in particular, I keep I keep beating the drum that I want to do like a live action, like all star Superman uh, um, movie. I think that would just I think that would just kick butt. Wow. Wow. See, now, now I'm going to people, people like to start petitions for like negative stuff. We're going to remake season eight of Game of Thrones. I'm going to start a petition for you to write that script with Christopher McQuarrie and get that movie done. You know, I know he's he's uh, he's busy with those Mission Possible movies, but, uh, it, you know, Warner Brothers wants to wants to call us. Uh, um, they, they, they got my number. Yeah. And, and actually, I'm just and this will be the, the part B and then we could wrap up. You know, I'm just what does your gut tell you? It, let's say that call came tomorrow. Would you want it to kind of start from scratch or would you want to find a way to incorporate Henry Cavill Superman and kind of almost like first class did, like not throw out what came before, kind of pivot in a new direction? So what would you want to do? Start new or kind of just pivot? It depends if they wanted to. I, I love Henry Cavill and I think he's an absolutely terrific Superman. I, I, I don't think he has always been best served um, like in, in Justice League. Um you know, longer discussion, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but he's terrific. So if they said like, like do something with Henry Cavill, I would find something to do with Henry Cavill. If they said we want to do all-star, 
I think you would need to get an older actor because the the kind of poignance of that particular story is that it's almost this kind of middle aged Superman yeah, uh, facing yeah. facing his own mortality. My my fantasy there is to uh, is to tell like uh, Brendan Fraser to get into shape and uh, and uh, <laughs> you know maybe fix his hairline a little and uh, and uh, um, do you know yeah do him because I I find him a tremendously compelling and underused actor and that would be so meta because he would he was almost in the conversation to be superman once right i think he wanted or they wanted him but he didn't want it or something like that no he wanted it but um it was that weird it was the the jj abrams script for superman flyby that mcgee my director yeah and then uh brett ratner were uh, were attached to direct but it didn't end up going Got it. Got it. Well, you know what? Uh, a guy can dream. You know, th- 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 that's definitely something that uh, if it can come together, even as a, as an Elseworlds movie, by the way, like that Joker movie that's happening in October, even if they just that's did. What's, that's what's freaking awesome is you don't need is you don't need to be in continuity anymore. I, I think audiences have audiences have been, become sophisticated enough to understand that, you know, just like there's a flash on the TV show and there's a flash in the movies. And yeah. now there's been, you know, there's, there's, uh, you know, Tyler, uh, what's his name on, uh, on Supergirl showing up as Superman. Yeah. And then, uh, and then there's the, and then there's the one that you see in the movies. Like, yeah. like people understand that there are different continuities. I think the, um, into the Spider Verse, uh, uh, teaching people about the multiverse uh, did did everyone did filmmakers a lot of favors in that uh, in that regard. Absolutely. Now there's room for all kinds of incarnations of all these stories, and I, for one, hope you get a chance to tackle that All Star Superman story at some point. But. Zach, thank you so much for, for agreeing to come on today. And I feel like I'd love to have you on again because I want to talk to you about The Flash and some of the other stuff we barely scratched the surface on and Terminator. But, you know. Uh, let, why don't we wait till the dust settles and we will, uh, we will uh, uh, talk again. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. All right. Wonderful, sir. Thank you very much. Let me know what you think of the movie. Will do. So there you have it, folks. That was my conversation with Mr. Stentz. And yes, I am going to let him know what I thought of it. I haven't yet seen it. That's going to be happening tonight, as I mentioned. And uh, the good news is there's not a very long wait to find out how Rim of the World is because Matt Vernier, our very own Matt Vernier, has already seen it. He's already told me he enjoyed the film and he's going to write a review for it on the site. So I'll let you guys know when that goes up at some point this weekend. But uh, yeah, Matt, Matt is, is a tough critic. And if he enjoyed Rim of the World, that must mean it's pretty darn good. So I'm looking forward to checking that out tonight. Now, in terms of things I checked out this week that we got to talk about, we got to talk about Sunday night's grand finale for Game of Thrones, you know? Um, I just couldn't get into it. I just couldn't. And it wasn't because of, I don't know, it's hard to know what to peg it on. But all I know is I understood all of the decisions that occurred and perhaps why they made sense on paper to do them. But the execution of what happened in the finale didn't really work for me. And maybe it might have benefited from having a few more episodes to flesh things out this season, maybe. Or maybe it was just, you know, maybe there are some failings that have occurred throughout the whole series that the finale kind of made very clear. I don't know what the case is. All I know is... And without getting into spoilers, just watching it, I found myself as, as as big things were happening and I realized where we were headed, I found myself groaning and losing interest. And that's not to say that, like I said, after the fact, I retroactively thought on it, I slept on it, and I realized, okay, I guess I understood why all of these things happened and why they happened the way that they happened. But that doesn't change the fact that I didn't find the episode particularly riveting, particularly impactful, or particularly powerful enough to warrant being the final installment of such a wonderful TV series. So, you know, without getting into spoilers, again, I, I can't go much further than that. But the Game of Thrones finale for me left me just feeling like I get it. I just don't love it, 
And I wish we might have prepared for this a little better because some of these decisions just feel kind of out of nowhere and almost retroactively undo a lot of the things that were cool and interesting about the series. So, you know, it is what it is, but Game of Thrones is gone. And I want to thank HBO for, you know, eight seasons of magnificent television. And, you know, it's funny, a lot of people, you know, there's been a lot of headlines or a few headlines this week about people looking into how they cancel their HBO accounts because, you know, the big thing is, right, you know, oh, Game of Thrones is done and that was my big reason for having the network. Now that it's gone, I'm going to cancel it. And honestly, I, 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 I can't relate. I just can't relate. I think HBO... Pound for Pound is one of the best places for original television that has ever existed. You know, it's funny. A couple of weeks ago, I was at my mom's house. And, you know, I recently cut the cord. And I, you know, I now do all my stuff through apps. I no longer have a cable box. And I helped get my mom to cut the cord too. And now we're sharing all these different apps and yada, yada, yada. And she was talking, she, she she wasn't sure why I had HBO because she only still thinks of it as like, that's just a channel where you can see movies, you know, and I can see movies almost anywhere now. And I had to break it down for her that like their TV division, their original content is pretty much second to none overall in terms of longevity. Because for my money, HBO, if you go back, you know, to the very first ever prime time for grown-ups television series that had production level, you know, production value, that had top level talent involved, all that kind of stuff. It all came from HBO. You know, HBO in the 80s really kind of put the cable TV series on the map. Up until that point, TV was, you know, done through broadcast channels. And then you had some of your basic cable channels and all that sort of stuff, your TNT and TBS and blah, blah, blah. But HBO, like, really started bringing that Hollywood level of, of craftsmanship and artistry and ingenuity to the small screen. Because you got to understand, for the longest amount of time, TV was always looked upon as like the little redheaded stepchild of the entertainment industry, where it's like movies are where it's at. TV is where actors go to die. You know, TV is like, oh, okay, now you're washed up and you can't be in a movie anymore. Now you'll be on TV. There was this perception of TV being less than and markedly less than. But HBO has always flown in the face of that. And if you go back to even like, you know, I fell in love with a series called Dream On that I used to love, which was kind of like it had a family guy cutaway aesthetic, you know, 15 years before there even was a family guy. You know, the, the Dream On did this thing where like they would take old movie clips and the central conceit of the series, which was kind of a like romantic comedy basic setup was that this kid, this guy had grown up in front of the TV. His parents just kind of plotted in front of the TV, and that's what raised him. So his mind is filled with old TV clips and old movie clips. And so as he goes through his life and things happen to him, we go into his mind a lot, and it cuts to some random movie clip that coincides with what happened on the screen. And what got me into it, by the way, is that my aunt, Elizabeth Pena, was one of the guest stars once on an episode called Super Freak. And, you know, my family and I didn't really, you know, we didn't have a lot of the nice things. You're growing up, I was, you know, it was, it was food stamps and it was making the most out of a little. But HBO was this like, you know, extravagance that we gave ourselves from time to time. We would take advantage of those like the free weekend or the free week and it was like, oh wow, we have HBO, this is a big deal. Um, but then when, when she was on Dream On, you know, we became regular subscribers because we wanted to see the episode and then we just kind of kept it. And, you know, by the way, little trivia, that little static, you know, the that happens at the beginning of the HBO, the oh, when the TV turns on, that's from the opening credits of Dream On. Dream On really was like that first big HBO series. And then from there, they went into the Larry Sanders show. They had Arliss. They eventually, you know, they, they, then I mean, you go down the line through the 90s, you got Oz, you got The Sopranos, you got The Wire, you got like, you know, you got Deadwood. 
I mean, there are such an unbelievable amount of TV series with unbelievable talent attached to it that all came from HBO. HBO made it cool for for, for Hollywood to start considering, you know what? We should invest more in TV series. So HBO will always have my subscription dollars. And when you look at all the stuff that they have going on on the network, I mean... I would be crazy to cancel it. Last night, I started checking out a new series that everyone's been talking about. I mean, it's not that new. It just concluded its second season. But for me, it's new. Now I'm adding a new HBO series into my rotation, of which I've already got Veep and Silicon Valley and John Oliver. I'm trying to think of other ones that I watch on the regular. Uh, Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. Um, it's not politically incorrect. What is it? What, what does he call his show now? What Real time. Real time. But now I've added Barry into the mix with Bill Hader. And I am so in love with Barry already after just one episode. You know, to me, I'd kind of written the series off. To me, it looked like, okay, so you took the first scene from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and you made a series out of it. For those of you who haven't seen Shane Black's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, first of all, shame on you. Uh, That's a Robert Downey Jr. Val Kilmer buddy movie written and directed by Shane Black. So if you guys like The Nice Guys, if you guys like Shane Black's scripts for the Lethal Weapon movies, if you like that Shane Black dark grown-up buddy cop comedy type of dynamic, you got to see Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But in that, you know, what sets up a huge part of that film's plot is that Robert Downey Jr. is a criminal, and while he's trying to evade capture and uh, amidst a robbery gone wrong, he runs into, he's like running down a hallway, and he goes into a room, and he's trying to avoid them, and lo and behold, he finds out that he's just walked into an audition, and he's his heart's racing, and he's sweating, and his emotions are at a 10 because he's running to try to, you know, save his life, basically. Doesn't want to go to prison, doesn't want everything is to be ruined. So when he auditions, it goes extraordinarily well. He brings, like, a lot of passion to it because it's just his natural intensity. And then he gets the job, and that's what Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is. It's kind of like this criminal kind of cozying up into the Hollywood lifestyle and... You know, Val Kilmer plays this, uh, I think he's like a PI or something that who, who they, they have to work together for research for the part. Well, I, I, honestly, it's been a couple of years, but it's such a good movie. And it's so good that it made me write off Barry. I'm like, Barry looks like a cheap knockoff of what happened with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's a guy who's a hitman, and somehow he gets involved with like acting. And it's about that dichotomy of being like a, a, a criminal part of the, you know, dark underworld, but also in show business and how those two things, you know, bisect. So I'd written it off and finally I decided to give it a shot. I'd heard so many good things. And on top of that, I kind of have a rule where I don't like to watch a show until at least two seasons have been filmed so that I know it's going to last because I, I, I hate catching a show season one and getting super excited, but then finding out that that was it. That, that, that they decided that they're not going to pursue it any further. Now that I know that Barry's had two seasons, that the buzz is really strong and that we're going to head towards a third, now I feel okay kind of dipping my toe in that water. And I'm really glad I did. You know, Bill Hader gives a really good, really sort of like uh, dialed down performance, very sort of introspective. He plays Barry in a very unique way. And Bill Hader, if you know him for his comedic work on SNL, this is one of those you know projects where you get to see other sides to him. And yes, it's funny, but yes, there's stuff in there that like I find sort of fascinating that I cannot wait now to, to, to learn more about this Barry character, why he is the way that he is, and what things he's going to learn for himself. He'll learn about himself as he goes through this Ring goes through this new path he's on of suddenly deciding to become an actor because a mark that he was there to kill goes into an acting class and Barry kind of has an epiphany while he's there sort of doing his research on this guy he has to kill. So this is what I mean though, like HBO, and I also hear that Chernobyl is amazing. So that's why I just, you know, I'm not trying to do a hard sell for HBO here. I don't get any commission on this. But I just want to say, if you're sleeping on HBO as a brand, as a studio, as a network, if you don't realize all the tremendous work they've done with practically revolutionizing the way we look at TV, then, you know, you're really, you're missing it.
You are not seeing what a wonderful network this is and all the great, great, like little, you know, gifts that they've given us over the years, you know? And I have a weird HBO story. Can I tell you guys? I've never told this story before. But a few years ago, I mean, listen, life is strange. Life is very strange. And sometimes opportunities pop up that you, when you least expect them and potentially life-altering things. So in like summer of 2014, I had been writing for Latino Review at that point for only about five or six months, let's say. And I suddenly get a call from some, I think his name might have been Jared or something. I get this random call from a 212 number that I do not recognize from this nice, peppy sounding guy named Jared. He goes, hi, is this Mario Robles? Oh yes, you write for Latino Review? Great, just the person I was looking for. Um, are you looking for employment? And I'm like, uh, I mean, sure, I wasn't, but I'm like, I wanted to see where this was going. They're like, all right, well, you know, right now we're looking for a director of programming for HBO Latino. And based on your writings, I feel like maybe it might be a good fit for you. Is that something you'd be interested in? And my mind is racing. I'm like, what are they talking about? I write, he writes, a, I, I write a couple of, you know, articles a day about movies, but I, I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I'm by no means some big shot who's been doing this and has this established reputation. But here you are talking to me about being a director of programming for HBO Latino. So I'm thinking like someone's pulling my leg here, but I'm going to go for it. All right. So I, I'm telling him, yes, sure. I'd like to do that. When can we interview? And a week later, there I was at HBO headquarters near Bryant Park in a meeting with the head of at least some department of HBO as well as one of the heads of Cinemax because they're owned by the same company. The two of them sat there with me. They, I sat on a couch opposite these two, you know, titans of industry and they picked my brain to see if I would be a good fit to be a director of, of programming for one of their networks. And the job would have entailed me having to basically sit back and watch all kinds of movies every single day, write notes about them, and decide whether or not I think they should go on to the network or not. I mean, it was truly surreal stuff. And when I did my research as to like the salary for that kind of job, I mean, it was literally like, this is an opportunity that could change my life forever. And I'm grossly underqualified for it, but I would be insane if I didn't at least try. So I went in and I gave it the old college try. I did the best I could, but just as I thought, they realized that I'm underqualified. Yeah, you know, they were hoping I was someone who had industry contacts that I that I had like yeah you know, that I, I I was more of an inside person for the industry, not an outsider who talks about the film industry. They wanted someone who actually has experience within the film industry. And that's ultimately what kept me from getting the job, which I totally get. And I never understood how this, how this phone call and this whole thing occurred, but there I was. So it's just funny for me, like HBO and I have this interesting relationship. I have such a respect for the network and the brand and what they create. And the fact that I sat in that office and there was at least some semblance of a chance that I could have been like a director for them and helped guide the content that they broadcast. That's one of those things that I look back on now five years later and I just can't believe it. And it goes to show you folks that you never know where opportunities may come from. That's something that I've always strongly believed. Everyone kind of looks at life in a very linear way that in order to get to X, I have to do B, C, D, F, G. I have to do everything in a particular order to get to where I want to get. But sometimes you got to just go for it. Sometimes you got to just go for it. Like this conversation I have with Mr. Stentz on this episode, you know, it was as simple as a Twitter exchange. You know, Diego put it on my radar. I followed up and a few days later, there I was interviewing someone who, you know, I, I can't believe the projects they've been involved in and the candor and openness with which they spoke to me about their projects. And meanwhile, I'm just some schmuck from Queens who just is following his muse and has the free time to try to turn this into perhaps something a little bigger and cooler. 
you know, li- life's a trip. Life is a trip. And hey, uh, we got a we, we got a Terminator Dark Fate trailer this week. We finally got our first look at the film, at the legacy sequel. And I got to tell you, I have concerns. I wasn't particularly sold. You know, I, I wanted this. This is one of those movies that I really believe in, that I really want to love, that I'm really rooting for. Because I'm a huge James Cameron fan. And Terminator 2 is one of my top films of all time so i've been really like pulling hard for this movie to blow me away and on paper so far a lot of it has so i i I came into this teaser hoping to be blown away but instead you know listen there were some iconic moments there were some things i really liked from a messaging standpoint the way they kind of go out of their way to let you know that this picks up from judgment day I love the callback in the beginning with with a female narrating as we look at an open road and look at those little white dashes come towards the camera. You know, like that's very that 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 was perfectly teeth, you know, Terminator 2 of them to do. And obviously the moment when Sarah Connor arrives and the our glimpse of Arnold. But overall I was a little underwhelmed by how rehashy it looks. You know, a lot of it feels like stuff we've seen already from these sequels that we are disregarding. And I even like, like namely like Mackenzie Davis's character, her arc of like, I am human when clearly we see that she has robotic, you know, cybernetic parts. Like it, to me, it, it's just like with Sam Worthington's character in Terminator Salvation, where it's like, are they real? Are they machine? Which is, you know, for, from an ideological standpoint, what makes you a human versus what makes you a machine? Like, I get it. I, I see what they're going for with that sort of arc again, I guess. But it just feels like we've already done that. We've already done the I am a human, but we know you're also a machine. And I don't know, there's just, you know what, you know what stressed me out? When you look at the credits at the end, it says story by, and it says James Cameron, but it also says four other names. So the story has five names included. The screenplay has like four names included. And just whenever there's that many writers involved in one project, I tend to get a little anxious. So to me, I hope this movie doesn't feel, you know, like uh, schizophrenic or, or just like a misfire, like a missed opportunity. Because this could be really special. And from people who attended CinemaCon and saw a trailer that they showed there for industry people, they say that that trailer mopped the floor with this one. So here's hoping that trailer one or two harks back to that CinemaCon footage because I want to be a believer. I was there. I was ready with pom-poms on my lap, ready to cheer watching this trailer yesterday. But unfortunately, uh, the pom-poms stayed right there where they were on my lap. But um, right now, what I want to do before I wrap up, because, you know, I always promise you guys that if you leave me reviews, I will read them on the air to show you my appreciation. And this is a testament to the response that episode 96 got. And speaking of podcast episodes, that if you haven't checked them out, you really should. Aside from episode 96 from last week, you should also check out episode 52 of The Revengers. Because I know this episode might have been a little light for you in terms of like, you know, a lot of you like when I talk about DC and Batman and all that kind of stuff. And the reason I didn't do it so much today or really at all today is because on Monday night I recorded in one take. We John Carpentered it. I recorded it in one take, an 85-minute Batman discussion with two of my very best friends in the world who happen to be huge Batman fans. And they are Brett Thomas Miro, who is one of my regular co-hosts on The Revengers. And the other one was Mr. Rob Marrera, the voice actor and co-host of the Play It Loud cast. So the three of us got together and talked all kinds of Batman stuff from casting rumors to wish list things that we'd like to, yeah, just soup to nuts. It was all Batman all the time on episode 52 of the Revengers earlier this week. So if if you feel like I I ripped you off a little bit on this week's The Fanboy for any like DC uh, Batman content, uh, please give that one a listen. That should hopefully satisfy your... uh, 
your 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 MFR ranting about Batman quota for the week. Um, but okay, so here's here's a couple of reviews that came in over on Apple Podcasts. The first one comes from Chubbs189. Chubbs uh, wrote, episode 96 was the best one yet because Mario put into words exactly what I've been thinking for a long time now. Bloggers and fans are making it so unbearable to be a fan of film and shows lately. It's always something, never happy, at a time when we never have been more fortunate. A kid... A kid like me from 91 could only dream of what we have now, especially with comic films. But no, all we do is complain and make demands as if we are owed anything. Keep up the great work, Mario. Well, thank you, Chubbs. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I know who you are. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that, sir. Uh, and then there's Kay Gilstrap13. How you doing, Katie? Katie wrote, if you're into anything entertainment movie, television, book, sports, you should listen to this episode immediately. Episode 96, that was the subject of the review. Well worth the listen and well worth the start of introspection into social media and the internet as we use it today. So thank you very much, Katie, for doing that. By the way, Katie, you know, you write for Revenge of the Fans. You already got the job. You don't have to butter me up with these reviews. But, uh, you know, clearly, it, you know, it struck a chord for you and, and with a lot of you. So thank you for all of you who took the time to leave reviews. Thank, thank you for all of you who've stuck, stuck this far into episode 97. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Zach Stentz. And I hope you're all taking very good care of yourselves. So folks, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.